We uh, tend to think that Paul lived in a different world than we did. And uh, in one sense he did, but in terms of ideas and things that influence, uh, thoughts and opinions that influence people, uh, his time is no different than ours. And uh, we need to kind of think through that. We're talking about the gospel, and um, this morning I wanted to spend time in Acts 17 because of the manner in which Paul addresses the Athenian culture, because the Athenian culture is reflected in American culture. And so we want to take time to examine um, some parts of uh, Acts chapter 17. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we go through it, that we'll hear your voice. Because the scripture is your word to us. It's the way that you communicate to us. You reveal yourself to us in your word. And so we pray that we would have open minds and open hearts. uh, And mostly that we would have submissive wills. Um, That's probably the hardest part for, for me anyway, is the submissiveness. So... Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would work in us this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 17. If you look in verses 1 to 9, they describe the ministry of Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. Uh, The gospel was directed there to Jews and God-fearers. Remember, God-fearers are Gentiles who received the word from the Jewish synagogues, but they wouldn't commit by going through circumcision. So they were not really, they, they wouldn't become Jews, in other words. Uh, so they, so Paul and Silas, they go into the synagogue and they reason with those present, but they reason with them from the scriptures. Their touchstone is the scriptures with the Jews and the Gentiles. Um, and uh, you see that uh, that, the, that the source of Paul's preaching was the scriptures, which were at that time what we call the Old Testament. And Paul was preaching the gospel to Jews from the Old Testament. Uh, we often fail to realize that the Old Testament does have the gospel. In fact, in Galatians chapter um, uh, 3, uh, verse 7, Paul says, uh, be sure that, that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So Abraham had the gospel preached to him. Now, we might ask how that how that was? How was it that God preached the gospel to Abraham? <clears throat> Paul mentions the specific promise that all the nations are going to be blessed through you, through your seed. Well, how is that the gospel? Well, when I say the gospel is in the Old Testament, I don't mean that it's there exactly as we see it in the New Testament. So one way I think that you can look at this is um, to remember that What Abraham looked at when God promised him that 
was a light, a light off in the distance. He looked at the light. We stand in the light. You see the difference? That's kind of like if you get up early in the morning before the sunrise. Uh, the sun doesn't really rise, but before day breaks. And uh, you'll see the light beginning to... So you're looking at the light. But once the sun is out, right, we're in the full light of day. And it's kind of like that. Abraham looks. He sees the light. He un and he understands because he believes God. God's going to do this. It's faith in what God says that that Paul is emphasizing. But the gospel is preached to Abraham, and he's looking ahead. He sees the light, but he isn't in the light. We are. I think John underscores this idea when he says in John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness, that he might bear witness to the light, that all may believe through him. He was not that light, but came to, that he might bear witness of the light. That was the true light, or this was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Even uh, those who were born not of blood, or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. So, when Abraham has the gospel preached to him, it's like a light in a distance. He sees it. Um, but he's not there. He's not in it. And so in the Old Testament, we see the light. It shines through. We could say Christ is on every page. We just don't know how to, we don't, we don't see it. And, um, one of the Bible studies I want to do is to go through this, uh, this book with everybody called Jesus on Every Page. You know, so it's focusing on the reality that the scripture is about Christ and it points to him, it talks to him. It reveals him to us. Uh, think of this. We don't have a lot of details about the crucifixion of Christ. They're very brief. Um, but we do have those details unfolded for us in the Old Testament. Think of the psalm when Jesus cries, My God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? You put that in the context of the psalm and you read that. Think of Isaiah 53. Jesus you know, was the, was the lamb. He was the one who died for his people's sins, and and he it describes how he looked. You know, he didn't. He wasn't. He wasn't like really good looking or anything like that. He wasn't striking, um, but he came as the servant of the Lord. And so, the Old Testament unpacks for us uh, details about Christ's life and about his death and resurrection that the New Testament doesn't go into. It's just that in the New Testament we we're standing in the light of day. And so the idea is that if we have an Old Testament foundation, everything just falls into place. And so we need to keep that in mind as we think about the gospel. Well, as we look at Acts 17, the first nine verses describe Paul um, reasoning with Jews from the scriptures, giving 
uh, explaining, giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And uh, he was saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, the Jews and the God-fearers would have understood that. Um, the Athenians didn't. Um, so some are persuaded, some are not, which was normal. And uh, they had trouble, so Paul had to leave. And so he went to Berea. And again, he's preaching to Jews. And he says they're more noble than all the other Jews in verse um, in verse 11 of chapter 17, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scripture daily to see whether these things were so. So then many of them believed, and a number of them were prominent, prominent Greek women and men, verse 12. But then the Jews from Thessalonica, they, they found out what was going on in Berea, so they sent up a, um, a contingent to go up there and stir things up. And so they had to get Paul out of the city again. Paul was always getting in trouble. So <laughs> he was getting in trouble because he obeyed God. So they got him out of there and they took him as far as Athens. And that's where we pick up on the section that I want to focus on. Acts 17, verse 16. Because you've got to, you've got to see... The change in Paul before he's reasoning from the scripture. But now he's not doing that. It's not that he's not referring to scripture. It's not that he's not bringing scriptural truth to bear. But he's not reasoning from the text. He's not going to scripture and saying, okay, you see this passage over here? This shows you that Christ has uh, has had to be uh, crucified and buried and raised again from the dead. Here's another text, and they look at that. That's what he was doing with his his Jewish brethren. But with the Athenian philosophers and those influenced by them, he couldn't do that because they didn't accept the scripture. <clears throat> you know, there was a time in America when you could talk to someone about the gospel and use the Bible to do so. Uh, though Christians, though not Christians, I mean, people were familiar enough with Christianity that you could use the scriptures to reason with them. Uh, they may not have been Christians, but they had a certain respect for the Bible. They did, even when I was a kid, but had a respect for the Bible. In fact, <clears throat> we had some friends, we used to go over and play penny ante poker, right? And um, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this girl's, this, uh, girls, this woman's brother would come and he'd bring his family and we'd be playing cards and uh, she would uh, she would say, oh, you're cheating, you know, on and on. They'd get in the big, they'd start to bicker and he'd go, give me the Bible. Give me the Bible. I'll, I'll, I'll swear on the Bible that, that I'm telling the truth. Where's your Bible? You know, well, he had a certain respect for the Bible. He's willing to swear an oath on it. He must, he thought something about it, but that's not true anymore. You don't even do that in court anymore. People might have been called God-fearers back then. They were interested but not committed. And that's not true anymore. We live in a time that is called post-Christian. We still preach the same gospel. We still appeal to the scriptures. However, our approach to people is different. We have to reason from their worldview to the scriptures. Well, what does that mean? How do we do that? Well, I think by considering Paul's sermon to the Athenians, I hope that we can see, at least glean some, um, glean some ideas from Paul to help us in our own outreach efforts. 
I want you to consider Paul's passion. Look at 17, verse 16 through 21. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. We'll just stop there for a moment. Drop down to verse 21. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So you have idolatry filled with just, you know, I guess, you know, what's the latest thing? Let's talk about the latest thing. And then you have these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Well, Paul is moved. The scriptures say provoked. We've got to understand that he was irritated. It actually angered him to see all those idols. Uh, Someone wrote that in Athens at that time, you could find more gods than you could find men. <laughs> so you've got a silly city just full. You know, it's a polytheistic city, and there's a reason for that. And that reason is, uh, partly anyway, the influence of the Epicurean philosophers. Um, Epicurus was a man who, he uh, he believed, it's hard to know exactly. I, I, uh, I'm not that familiar with him, but I just have some, things about him that uh, are interesting. Him and his philosophy. He was not he didn't start and neither did the Stoics start um, with uh, with intellectual speculation. They didn't they didn't believe in that. No, they started out of a political and social concern. Um they weren't is that they weren't as concerned about knowledge for its own sake. In fact, Epicurus depre- uh, deprecated the pursuit of knowledge for its own sake, whether it's philosophy or science. He only asked two questions: What is the aim of life, and how to attain it? And uh, the aim of life was your happiness. Your happiness, and the way to attain that. Was he said? They say he said pleasure, but he didn't mean by that um, um, things like you know immorality. He didn't he didn't have that in view where you just you know like we have in America, everybody does what they want. Um, what he meant was that you avoided pain. The Stoics have the same kind of an idea. And they're together. They're different, but in a lot of ways, they're the same. They have the same kind of ideas about 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 avoiding pain. And so, you know, you hear about people like Robert E. I think it was Robert E. Lee, or was it uh, Stonewall Jackson? Right, Stonewall Jackson uh, was a Stoic. I mean, not maybe in philosophy, but he, you know, was like whatever happens, happens. You know, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna going to face it, and I'm not going to worry about it, I'm not going to be afraid of it. Now, Stonewall Jackson was a Christian, and he said, you know, he believed that his whole life was predetermined by God, and so if he got shot and killed, well, that's God's will. Well, Stoics had the same kind of idea, you know, it was just, it was, it was different and wasn't, it wasn't focused as um, Stonewall Jackson's was. Uh, they were, they were hedonists in a, in a certain sense. But their aim in life was for every man to own 
his own happiness, and and that's defined as pleasure. Um, but it's more of a pleasure that uh, avoids pain. Um, some people say that the United States is influenced by ancient Greek philosophy um, in some of the way we talk about things. For example, you know, all men are created equal, and um, you know, therefore, we have this right to uh, the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. Right? Happiness. Now, some people dispute whether happiness means happiness, avoiding trouble and pain, or if it means just being happy. And because we don't all understand that, we have all these different perspectives. But we live in a country that that's they're pretty. Our country is pretty much like Epicureans and Stoics. You know, just I want my way. Um, and I want to live my life my way. I want I want to determine what I am. I want to determine what makes me happy. I'm the I'm the center, right? Another thing, and I think it's reflected in American culture as well, that they that at least Epicurus, I understand, believed he was what you call a monist. What's a monist? Well, a monist is someone who believes that everything is one, and so God is one, right? One, everything is God. That's why he, you know, got into polytheism. That's why they had so many gods, because everything was God. And, um, I don't think if, I don't know if they thought through it or not, but if that's true, then we're God. Right? If everything is God, we are God too. And so that's the kind of thing that Paul was addressing as he went, uh, into Athens and he's preaching. And we notice what, what happens there. Um, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they were conversing with him. Uh, actually, they were debating, uh, putting forth op, you know, opposing, op, or, um, opposing opinions. That's what the word means. And um, they were, some were saying, well, he's just a babbler. He, he, uh, he wants, we want to know what he has to say, you know, because he, he seems to be proclaiming strange deities. Why were they strange? Well, they were strange because Jesus wasn't part of their pantheon. He was different. They never heard this before. So we want to find out what he's he's talking about. And so they take him, or they invite him to speak at the Areopagus. And so we drop down to verse 22. The Areopagus. Athens was a very famous city when Paul was there. And um, they were famous for their culture, their dramatists, their philosophers. Uh, Plato and Aristotle were there. They were, set, they were a city that didn't even have to pay taxes to Rome. They were, they were an independent city. It was an amazing place to be. So here's Paul in the midst of all these people who are living, well, you might be saying they're living the good life, right? If you come to America, that's why I think people want to come here. Because uh, we, live, we live the good life. We really do. Compared to two-thirds of the world, we live a really good life. 
Well, Paul's in the place where everybody's living a really good life. And when he starts preaching Christ and the resurrection from the dead, he gets their attention. And so they invite him to speak. He goes to the Areopagus. He stands up. And I want you to notice, first of all, that he does not attack them personally. He doesn't say, you're a bunch of pagans. He doesn't do that. Rather, uh, he begins with a compliment. He begins with a compliment. I believe that you are very religious. Wow. That would, that would, that would stoke their fire, wouldn't it? That would build up their ego. Um, so he begins that way. He was irritated by their idolatry, but he did not let his irritation determine his approach to them. His irritation moved him to proclaim Christ. You see, the point is not so much winning an argument or creating an enemy. The point is to proclaim Christ. And that's what Paul does. So notice he says in verse 22, I perceive that you observe um, that you are very religious in all respects. Because I was I was passing through, you know, I, I saw your objects of, of worship and and I also found this altar with an inscription on it to the unknown God. What's an unknown God? Well, that's what he is. He's an unknown God. You know, they were just trying to cover all their bases. They they had all their own deities. They named them all and all that. But they, they didn't know they had them all. You know, maybe there's another one out there. So we don't know who he is. So we'll just say to the unknown God. I think that archaeologists actually found an altar with that inscription on it sometime back to the unknown, unknown God. Here we go. Here we go. All right. I'll hurry now. So. Oh, okay. All right. So um, <clears throat> he points, he, he uses that, their concept of an unknown God, as a stepping stone to preach the truth. He does not interact with them and try to show them that they're wrong in their thinking. He doesn't do that. And he doesn't appeal to the scripture um, by saying, okay, Genesis chapter 1 says this. He doesn't do that. He could do that with Jews, but he couldn't, he couldn't do that with these people. So he does not, he does not, uh, uh, try to inter interact with them from that, but he reasons from that foundation to what the scripture teaches. Now, he's going to preach the gospel to them. He's going to preach Christ to them, but he's using this as a foundation to get there. It's their concept of an unknown God. So Paul says in verse 23, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this is what I proclaim to you. You don't know about this God that you've got this altar to. He's unknown to you. So I'm going to tell you about the God who's unknown to you. That's really what he's doing. And so how does he begin? <clears throat> well, he begins with creation. He says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell 
in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our, and, and, and exist. As some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Let's just stop there for a minute. Just think of what Paul has said here. You're worshiping an ungoat God. I'm going to tell you about the God you claim you don't know. Because if you don't know him, then you don't know anything about him. He's just an unknown to you. Well, this is the God I proclaim to you, the one that you don't know. And I'm going to tell you that the God you don't know is the God who created the world and all things in it. That's the first thing. God is the creator. He's the one that made all of this. You you construct an idol, uh, uh, an idol, or you construct an altar, and you think that by that you're worshiping God. But I want to tell you, He's the one that created this world. It's kind of like remember I think it was Jeremiah was mocking the, the the people of his day about their idols. He said, "See." You know, you take your you take a piece of wood, you chop it up, you build a fire, you cook your you cook your uh, your meat on it, and then uh, you carve you carve an image, put it before you, bow down, and say, you know, thank you, God. You know, it sounds so stupid, doesn't it? Of course, it's stupid. Well, these guys are doing something similar, <clears throat> though he doesn't. Paul doesn't refer to Jeremiah, or he doesn't he doesn't uh, point that out to them. He just says, the Lord is the creator of the world. And the implication of that is if God's the creator of the world, then why are you using all these things, right, to worship? Why why do you have all these gods if there's one creator? And why do you have this altar to him like you're doing something for him? Um, God is not served by human hands. So, but the second thing he says, he says, first God made the heaven or he made the world and all things in it. Uh, that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't dwell in temples like you have. He doesn't dwell in these kinds of places. Why? Well, he's God. And he's the Lord. And he doesn't dwell in earthly places. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the one that says what is and what isn't. He's the one that says what's right and what's wrong. Not your philosophers, not you. It's God who is the Lord because he's the creator. Therefore, he is the Lord by by definition. He's the Lord of all things. So he's not served by human hands. That doesn't mean that we don't have worship services. So we don't want to misunderstand Paul. Of course we have worship service. We don't put God on a post here and say, there, let's worship him. Um, no, we gather together to worship God. And, uh, and But Paul means he doesn't need anything from us. He's not a God who needs to have all this, all your sacrifices. and all. God doesn't need that. He's the God of heaven and earth. And instead of you giving to him, verse 25, he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. It's God who gives us all this. So he starts with the creation. He starts with the God that they claim they don't know. He starts not from the scripture, but he uses scriptural ideas 
to interact with them. And so we can learn that lesson, that we don't have to always quote the Bible when we're talking to somebody. That, I'm not saying don't do that, but I'm saying what you need to do is have the Scripture down in your heart and mind so that you can, do, so that you can um, proclaim what the Scripture says to someone who's not familiar with Scripture. And we're getting into a time in our history when people are less and less familiar with the Bible. That's why all these things are having a heyday, right? You know, the Da Vinci Code and all that kind of stuff is in a heyday because people don't understand the scriptures. Number one, number two, they don't even they don't even understand the history underneath it, right? So they don't know these things, and so they're easily influenced by false teaching, and it's getting worse. So we need to be able to teach them the truth. Uh, with the idea of turning their attention to the one true God. Then we notice that Paul says, <clears throat> he, when he talks about creation, he moves right into, he made from one man, or from one, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He's appealing to the creation of Adam and Eve. There's Adam. So he's he's in he's kind of indirectly moving them in the direction of understanding who Adam is, though he doesn't mention his name, because Adam is a key figure as you begin to proclaim the gospel, right? As in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. So we see that we have these elements of the gospel in here, but he's not He's not stating them clearly. He's just saying God created all things, and by the way, He created what He created from one man, every nation on the earth. And by so, then by invitation, it'd be easy to move on then to talk about those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. So He goes back to that creation, and He draws their attention to that. But then He says that God, verse twenty-seven. He appointed the, the, the times and boundaries of, of men's habitations. And what was the purpose in that? The purpose in, or in that is in verse 27, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For, because, reason, in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children or his offspring. Let's think about what those what Paul means by that. He says that God created man, all the nations from one man, and he he determined their boundaries and all of that. But there was a purpose in it that they might grow after him. And we know from Romans chapter one that men don't grope after God, at least they don't grope after the God who created them. We read in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven um, for ungodliness of mankind. When the, the, uh, though they knew God, right? They knew God because they're create, creatures of God. They're creating his image. They knew God. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And their suppression of the truth leads them into all those sins that Paul mentions. And so God gave them up to their own passions to do whatever they want to do with their bodies and everything else. And so 
God's purpose, though, was not that that would happen. Um, God's purpose for them was to seek him and try to find him, grope after him. Well, um, they didn't do that. But in their, in their cultures, they groped after other gods. And sometimes you can use that to draw, draw people to Christ. Um, there's numerous missionary stories of, of people who came to Christ because when they heard the gospel preached, they thought, that, that's what I need. And how did they get to that point? Well, their religion was false, but the elements of their religion were bothering them. And so the Holy Spirit uses that, and, and they come to Christ. So that happens. Um, it could happen in our own country, where people are searching. People today are searching for hope. Uh, Paul and I were talking. Uh, this, the people in our country have don't have any hope. You know, they're they're searching for hope. That's a something that's gnawing away at them. And their God that they serve, um, whether it's science or money or sex, isn't fulfilling the need they have for that hope. And so it's, it's, it's a point like that that we can pick up on as those who want to take the gospel to Albuquerque and, and help people to see that there is hope in Christ and there's not hope in anything else. It's taking the scriptures and saying, okay, how did you do it? Let's do it that way. And so we can address the hopelessness of our, of uh, the people around us. We can also address their idolatry. They're not being fulfilled by their sexual fantasies. They're not being fulfilled by their <clears throat> by their searching after all the money that they can take. They're not being fulfilled by any of that because all of it ends up just nothing. It all ends up just nothing. I forget what philosopher it was. It was French. And all his life, he didn't want anything to do with God or anything like that. And at the end of his life, on his deathbed, he says... He says, all I see is before me is darkness and despair. That's what a lot of people see on their deathbed. Because they have no faith in Christ. And we can try the best we can by prayer and reading the scripture to try to address the people of our world with scriptural truths that challenge their unbelieving presuppositions. We we need to do that, and we can do that, and we have an example of that right here in Acts chapter 17. I think I could spend, you know, six months in Acts chapter 17 just trying to draw out those details, and I'm not going to do that, but it's a great chapter. We can learn so much about how we can evangelize the world in which we live. <clears throat> So Paul goes from the unknown God. Um, his argument is logical. God is the creator and the Lord. And that's something the Epicureans and Sto Stoics would dispute. But Paul doesn't let that dis dis uh, dis deter him from telling the truth. So he goes on. And what does he appeal to next? Well, first he appeals to the, their their concept of unknown God and he tells them I'm going to tell you about that God you don't know and so he begins to talk about God who created God who's the Lord God who made mankind from one man and God who set their boundaries and habitations his providence did he did that in his providence and he wanted them to grope after him and you know um, 
if you look at if you look at false religions, you can usually find something in them that is that points to the um, the inadequacy of their own religion, which drives them then to the adequacy of Christ. For example, I'm trying to read, trying to study Islam. So, uh, one one of the classes I listened to, we went through uh, the surah. That's their chapters. They don't call them chapters, but it's a surah, and it was about the names of Allah. And what was interesting was that what they said in their on their list of the name, the ninety nine names of Allah, none of us would disagree with. We would all say, "Yeah, we believe that too." You know. So, <clears throat> but if you read through the Quran. What you're going to find is that it's hopeless. What you're going to find is there's no concept of God loving us. There's no concept of any of that. There's no concept of salvation. Nothing. So they're missing something in their understanding. But So you can use that to point them to Christ. That's what Paul is doing when he's preaching the gospel. He is pointing to Christ, but he's using their foundations to lead them to understand their views are futile and they need Christ. And so he says to them in verse 28, he brings out another detail of scripture. And that is that in him, in God, we live and move and exist, as even some of your own prophets have said. So he quotes a he quotes a Greek prof, uh, a Greek poet, but his point is that we live and move and have our being in God. What does that mean? Well, that talks about God's imminence, right? Christians believe that God is transcendent; that is, He's totally other, but He's imminent; that He's near to us. God is closer to us than the air that touches our skin. But you know, we just we we don't sense him, but he's right here with us all the time. You know, and he's given us a hope in Christ. There's nothing to be afraid of. And he's here with us even if we're suffering. Even if we're going through the worst suffering of our lives, he's right here with us because we live in him. And he in, in him we live and move and we exist. That's something that they had no concept of. So he's telling them, this is your unknown God. He's the creator. He's the Lord. He made all nations from one man. He's He's the one who who is so near to you that he's nearer than the very breath you believe. He's not in an idol. He's not on an altar. You live and move and have your existence in him. So you need to direct your attention away from all this stuff and focus at some else, And so he acknowledges that they say that we're the children of God. And so he says to them, well, if that's true, if it's true that we're the children of God, then what follows? Well, we should not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Oh, if you really believe what you say, right? They say, yeah, we're the children of God. We're his offspring. Well, you really believe that? Well, if you really believe that, then you have to understand that 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 perspective would lead you away from 
these gold and silver idols that you've made. They, they wouldn't have you make them. It doesn't make sense to have a, a gold statue or a silver statue if, if in fact you live and move and have your being in God and if in fact you are his, you are his offspring. If that's true, what are you doing? See, he keeps, he's driving it home. He's saying you, it doesn't make sense to believe what you believe. And so he's taking their worldview apart, as it were. So then he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Okay. God put all these people out there for a purpose, that they would grow after him. Okay, So he's overlooking this time of ignorance. Now he's calling them to repent. Because now we've come to this point in the history of mankind that God has demonstrated his uh, God has demonstrated his purpose in Jesus Christ. So he says, God calls them to repent. Well, when we hear the word repent, we think, oh, that means we have to stop sinning. Well, that's true, but that's not what the word means. The word means to change your mind. That's what it means. It means to change your mind. It also means to turn around and walk the other direction. That's true. But it primarily means to change. If you're going to turn around and walk the other direction, it's because you've made a decision to do so. So, it's changing your mind about your views of God. You need to stop worshiping these idols and praying to or offering sacrifices to this unknown God. And you need to turn from that and turn to the living and true God. The one who created all things, the one who created mankind, the one who allowed everybody to go their own ways, the, the one now who has appointed a day in which he will judge the world. Uh-oh. Judgment? Wait a minute. Why is he going to judge the world? Primarily because they're, they're idolaters and they reject God. Okay? Think of this, and I don't misunderstand me. It's not a person's homosexuality that condemns them. It's not a person's immorality that ultimately condemns them. It's not that a man or a person is a murderer that condemns him. Yes, those things will be judged. I'm not saying that they won't be. But what condemns him is his rejection of God. Because if he didn't reject God, those other things would not follow. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean he'd be perfect or any of that. But it means that he would say, wait a minute, I, uh, I, can't, I can't do that. I, he may struggle. I'm not saying he won't even fall into sin. What I'm saying is that He's going to say, no, I can't do that. Why? Because, because I've been created by God. I'm his. I've been saved by Christ. I, I can't do this. Even if he's done it for a long time, he has to say, however much the struggle is, you know, I, I got to get people around me to help me, to keep me on the path, but, but I got to, I got to, I got to stop. But what, what took place was not that he says, oh, I got to stop my sin. What took place was I gotta I gotta turn to the Lord. I gotta trust Him. 
And it's because of that. It's because of my trust in Christ. It's because Christ is in me that now I say, oh, I have to change this. Oh, I have to change that. And it doesn't take place all at once. And not, it's not like you get zapped with something and all of a sudden you're, woo, you know, you're not. You go through life, you progress in your sanctification. But it's Paul, when he talks about repentance, he's talking about repentance and, and turning towards towards God and placing faith in Jesus Christ, which is the next thing he talks about, because he's going to fix a day when, on which, or in which, on which, he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So there, Paul gets to the very core idea of the gospel. The resurrection. And how do you avert judgment from a man who's been raised? He's not just a man. He's the God-man, but he's been raised. How do you avert judgment? That's the question. Paul doesn't say it here, but I, I do believe that he probably told them. The way that you avoid the judgment that's coming is to turn to the Christ who's been raised from the dead because he is your only hope. Now, if you take these little details and you impose them on 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 10, where Paul declares the gospel, you'll see the gospel in these verses, but it's not stated in the same way. But the ideas are all there. Because the gospel is what changes man, changes people. It's not me that changes people. It's not you. We, you know, it's not there. It's not there saying, okay, I won't do that sin anymore. That doesn't change a person. What changes a person is when they come to Christ, when the Holy Spirit regenerates them and they believe in Jesus and they trust in him, they put their hope in him. When they get to the point where they can say with Paul, there's no longer I who lives, but Christ who is in me. And the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Paul's message of averting the judgment of God, having faith in Christ. And so we see in Acts chapter 17, while it's not stated in those details, if you take those details from other places and you, and you superimpose Acts 17, uh, 16 and following, on those places where the gospel is declared with, with some clarity, what you'll see is that Paul is declaring the gospel to these guys. It's just in different words. It's in words that they will understand. And then we come to the end of the passage of what happens. You can always expect one of two responses. Either people are going to listen and want to know more, they may not believe, but they want to know more. Or, um, like these guys, they started to laugh. Um, some began to sneer. Verse 32, others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul leaves. Notice, in this pagan context, nobody's getting angry. Right? When he's with the Jews, they get all mad and they get all kinds of things going and they Paul gets beaten several times. But when he's standing before the Athenians, all they do, they say, well, we want to hear more. Some people laugh and then Paul leaves. That's all. You know, he did he did what God wanted him to do. So he goes out of their midst and uh, some of the men joined him, we see in verse 34, and they believed 
among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Now tradition, the tradition of the church, identifies Dionysius as the Bishop of Athens, the early Bishop of Athens. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but that's what they do. But the point is, whether it's whether he's a bishop of Athens or not, the point is he believed. He and other people really believed. So you see the responses. I want to hear I want to hear more, or I'm gonna laugh at you, or I believe what you say. Well, when we declare the gospel to people, uh, and we try to use their understanding of the world as a, as, a, as a springboard to lead them to the scripture, then that's going to happen. Some people are going to believe, some people just want more information, and some people are just going to laugh at us. And we can't know what the result will be before we start, right? So let's start. i got to say that to myself too. And let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the for Acts 17. It's such a rich pas- passage. It's so there's so many details there that I've missed. Uh, there's other things that could be said, and um, uh, but it does direct us to the God. What's fascinating is that is that Acts 17. While it doesn't appear that Paul is preaching the gospel, he really is. He's just not using terms that Jews are or other people would be familiar with, he's using terms that their culture, the philosophers, are familiar with. Help us to understand more as we read this passage. Help us to be a people who desire to take the gospel out. Help us to have a passion like Paul's. Let let the idolatry of our world um, cause us to be agitated, not to be mean to people, but be agitated to do something about proclaiming the gospel. That's what happened to Paul. That's what we pray happens to us. Father, we commit this to you. In Christ's name, amen.